Welcome to the Propane Business Podcast. I'm Johnny. And I'm Yusuf. We set up and built propanefitness.com into the profitable semi-automated system that it is today, which allowed us to quit our corporate jobs and coach online full-time. More importantly, we were able to do this without a huge online audience or being glued to social media every day. We're now ready to share everything from the failures we've made to the systems that now consistently generate hundreds of thousands in revenue. We help personal trainers, coaches, and gym owners do the same by avoiding the mistakes we've made and the best practices going forward. Subscribe to this podcast to learn what we're doing and what we've done to build and scale propanefitness.com. We'll be teaching you how to generate a steady flow of online clients, win at Facebook ads, automate your coaching systems, and to achieve financial independence. Eric Helms, we are back again. Thank you for rejoining us. And you've not been traumatized enough by the last one. Oh, I'm very trauma trauma resistant. I'm I'm here to be. I'm back, and if I don't get PTSD after this, then I'm going to ask for a full refund. Yusuf's Bert picture is designed to. It's like mental warfare with people. I actually grew up with uh, Sesame Street, the old school original stuff. So to me, it brings a sense of solace and comfort. Knowing that he's out there being annoyed by Ernie as his roommate. <laughs> Did you ever see that Dutch guy that went in for some kind of hip operation? Maybe even the same one you had, Eric. And he had this rare reaction to the anaesthetic where he would just couldn't stop laughing. And he was driving his wife completely nuts with it. No, but that sounds amazing. It is great. I mean, the story is amazing. I'm, I feel terrible if there was bad things that happened. With these he, yeah. It starts off, it's a funny video, but there's things that, like, his wife gets really upset and he can't take it seriously, but the, he has a Sesame Street doll that he plays with and thinks is hilarious. We'll send you wow. He had a permanent neurological yeah. effect from anesthesia. He's completely functional apart from can't take anything seriously, so Johnny and I are suspicious that he maybe used it as a, a platform to just wind up his wife for the remainder of his life. This basically sounds like the plot to Office Space, except instead of hypnosis from a psychiatrist, it was anesthesia. Menno Henselman's <laughs> recommended that we watch yeah. Office Space two days. So we spoke to Menno this week, and neither of us had ever heard of Office Space, ever heard of it mentioned, and then twice in one it's, week. So it's definitely something that I would say, just on the cusp of being a, a baby boomer, boomer, so like late thirties American. Like white guys will, will are are the people who will always recommend. It, it's not just like ev- the evidence based fitness world. Is not the. I don't know how some young Dutch dude watched it, but Menno does his own thing. He walks to the beat of his own Bayesian drummer. But it's a hilarious movie. It really is. There's a, a lot of quotables from it, and the whole story is this guy is slowly dying in purgatory of of working in the you know white collar world. And he tries to, I can't remember what brings him into the psychiatrist's office, but the psychiatrist has a heart attack mid-hypnosis where he asks him to let, let go of all your cares in the world. And then he just is stuck with letting go of all his cares in the world. So he, <laughs> he finds salvation through not giving a shit. It's, it's really actually a great movie. I'm going to have yeah. to watch it now. It's, it's, you guys would like it. I know you would. Because I know yeah. both of you and your sense of humor. So how was sarcasm? What was that, Joy? I was... Uh, See, this is the problem. We Zoom. We need a system. We still haven't got a system for three ways. We were going to get paddles. Paddles or, or and a I lighting think we system. decided on lean back So we haven't got a system for three ways. We need paddles. <laughs> I'm not sure we're taking this conversation. You did say wherever we want to take it, Eric, you'd be, you'd be comfortable. I, we didn't discuss safe words. 
So that's true. Know. That's what the paddles are for. But yes. Or, okay. How, how, how has 2020 been? I realize that sounds like a sarcastic question. It's not. It's a um, great year. No. 2020 was interesting, man. So yeah, I think like everyone, I had expectations as far as how it might affect me and my businesses and the world. And then there was the reality and it didn't always match up. Obviously, COVID was far worse than I anticipated. And initially, I actually felt guilty appreciation for the fact that I didn't travel as much as I did in previous years. Because I always just overdo it a little bit. Like, it's fantastic in June. And then by November, I hate people. (laughs) And it's my own fault. Because I really do like people. I just probably should be able to sleep in my own bed a few times per year. I'm exaggerating. But anyway, I traveled a whole lot less. That was good. And then I got a little, man, I feel disconnected from people. And and we have it, and that, that's considering that we have it really good in New Zealand. We've only had a, two lockdowns. And that's only if you live in Auckland, where, where I do. And if you don't live in Auckland, you have one lockdown. Yeah, I think the silver lining is that we expected mass, 3D muscle journey, everything to be hit pretty seriously hard by COVID because people don't have access to gyms. Their income's lower. And I would think a lot of people, this would be something that they would pull back from as far as trying to manage their expenses. But I think because of the type of lifters that we appeal to, which this is a core part of their lives and something, whether there's a will, there's a way, they'll find a way. We got the very interesting opportunity to help people figure out how to bodybuild in their house. And I think people had more time to read, catch up on continuing education, listen to podcasts, watch videos. It wasn't like a great year in terms of of being someone who produces information for a living, but it was not bad. And something I feel very fortunate for that what we do is, and, and the people we do it for seems to be valued. And that's something that is, I'm not going to say COVID proof because that sounds arrogant, but it, it wasn't hugely negatively affected by 2020. That's cool. It's a spectrum, isn't it? I suppose like the, what, the threshold to train or to sack off training is determined by how much of a part of your life it is. And I guess a lot of your audience are probably people that would drive 40 minutes to get to the gym. And yes, it's a bit annoying if gyms are closed, but they'll find a way compared to a lot of people where like, if they already, if they need the slightest excuse to skip training, they'll be like, oh, you know what? It's locked down. I'll just pick it up when things reopen. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't pretend to fully understand the psychology, but I think if you look at behavior change, the discussions are always around <laughs> reducing friction. That's a terminology you'll hear that to, for a habit to set in, you need to do it consistently for a while. And the things that could derail you are not a big deal in isolation, but because you're going through this process of habit formation, being derailed can derail or set back that habit formation. So reducing friction, anticipating obstacles, barriers, and things like that is very important. And I think the threshold for when friction actually prevents someone from training when they are someone this serious about lifting is is much higher. Another thing I was thinking about, and and I really don't mean to be flippant with the lives of inmates or people who are um, incarcerated, but there is some comparison to being on lockdown, especially people in countries where it's been extended and they don't have access to much. But I think time to exercise is something that people really appreciate when they have limited options, getting outside, moving your body, being able to train, giving you something to focus on, giving you something that that feels like progress when you feel stagnant because you're stuck in one place. So I do think that at least some anecdotes I've heard is that initially people like 
lost the desire to train. And then eventually they're like, I've got to do something. And then the, the competing drives of now there's a huge amount of friction. I have to train in ways I don't like. I don't have a barbell. God, I hate Bulgarian split squats with a backpack of furniture or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And all the things that, that we associate with the eye roll of, damn it, I don't want to have to do leg day while I'm locked down. Yusuf, you probably are more capable with your gymnastics background. You know how to move your body and train in many ways. But I think a lot of people aren't. And then that prevented them from training. And then eventually they went, look, the, the pain of not being able to do anything is worth now me figuring this out. So it, there's been phases, I would that, say. That's a really good parallel because I think inmates, yeah, they are seasoned pros at lockdown. Like they're probably looking at us thinking, oh, these guys are a bunch of pussies. Like we've been through. And, and so, yeah, like those phases to the point where they have now established it as almost the, the, the central coping mechanism. And mm. um, I think... This year has definitely been a, a point where everyone's had to come to terms with what it's like to be in your own company, for better or for worse. A- apart from yes. this, I've just been, my, my work's just got more busy. But, <laughs> busier. But yeah. Yeah. How has it been for you? Not to become the podcast host all of a sudden to follow me. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's been very busy at hospital. And then there was, a couple, there was yeah. like a lull and then it became busy again. And now it's just business as usual. When mm-hmm. it was kicking off, I was working in the admission suite, so accident and emergency, pretty horrendous. Then no one came in because everyone was terrified to come in. And then we had this backlog of non-COVID presentations of delayed heart attacks and strokes in the subacute complications of that. It's been a bit of an interesting ride. But in the UK, everyone is, has been put on 80% pay to do nothing. Mm-hmm. And yeah. It's just grass is greener because I'm on there two in the morning being rammed with work thinking like, oh, I'd love to do what this guy's complaining about on Instagram saying, oh, I'm learning Japanese and making sushi and doing a yoga retreat at home. But actually, the reality of that's probably not as fun. Yeah. And the one dude who is like making the, um, sourdough bread and <laughs> yeah, the, the people who are like, this is amazing. Look at all the things that I'm doing. And, and you're lazy if you haven't read Japanese, I think, or learned learn Japanese. I can tell you one thing probably doesn't have kids from talking to family members and, and other people. Like the, uh, there's a distinct difference between parents and single people who I've talked to during lockdown. And I also, I just think about, man, like socialization is such a huge, important part of like childhood development and that's really not happening. So it's, yeah, it's, uh, there's so many echoes of how this will affect society, but it is interesting to hear you uh, being in medicine as a doc. How does it feel to be part of a global conspiracy to, keep propagating this fake virus that doesn't actually exist so to be honest i'm quite excited for the in- improved wi-fi that i'm going to get in my vaccine <laughs> this week so are we just hoping... you are you are a 5g station now when you get the, the vaccine sweet right? yeah best way to that's get really the coverage good. isn't it those valleys that didn't have coverage not a problem you need anymore. people there that's right bill gates we, smart guy we're just hoping that everyone listening appreciates that yusuf was joking yes we're all totally yeah yeah, COVID's real. Please, we think. The um, <laughs> I saw uh, occasionally some some clips of you this year, Eric. Like training. So one one clip did make me laugh, where you were like doing a pull up on a door frame, and then mm. two days later, were like, I have been told that apparently doing a pull up on a door frame <laughs> cannot be. Yeah. I didn't say do a pull up on a door frame, and you were training in a car park, I think. Yeah, so it was my, the car park. 
That's that was my first retraction, which is an unfortunate moment in an academic's career where, you know, I, I made a recommendation to do something based off what I thought was good evidence, but I didn't realize that Dunning Kruger does extend to uh, me as well. I am not imperfect. So apparently the flimsy doors that most apartments have are not things that 90 kilo males should do pull-ups on. And I am actually quite lucky that I didn't actually, on video, pull my door down. But a number of people who have life skills contacted me and said that's probably a bad idea. One thing that I can say for certain about myself is that after 16 years of exclusively learning everything about lifting weights, I don't have life skills. And I'm very one-dimensional in my knowledge set. So things like driving stick understanding how doors work aren't skills I have. So it was, that was sobering and it was a good reminder to stay in my lane. And I recommended people to use only approved pull-up devices, but yeah, so I, I actually had, uh, I had a slightly longer lockdown than other people because I came from overseas. So I had to do self quarantine for a week before the whole country was on self quarantine. So I had an eight week period of training and then a, another four week with the Auckland lockdown. Fortunately, the second one, was after we got our new place and, and had a garage, our home garage, and was starting a home gym. So that wasn't too bad. But for the first lockdown, I was taking 90 kilos of weights and Olympic barbell out to the park and doing like a like a yoke walk out to this flatter patch and then doing Olympic lifting out in the park. And I loved it like for the first two weeks. And then I would just hate the idea of doing that. It would rain sometimes. One time, this, this guy throwing frisbees got like really close to me, and I was worried about everyone's safety. A dog came and sniffed my leg while I was recovering from a snatch, and I'm like, "Oh my okay. god!" And there's flies around and all kinds of stuff. So I was like, "You know what? I wonder if I can do this in my apartment garage." So we had one car but two parking spaces after we got rid of our second car. So I was like training in my parking spot, but I can't do a jerk and fully recover. So I would have to like jerk. And then stand up and touch the ceiling and let it down or dump it. And I could only use a certain amount of weight because if you dump it, man, it echoes so loud. It was it was a challenge. Yeah. So there was a, I think like everybody, I was figuring it out, but I had it far better than most people considering the short time period. Yeah. I think barbells were like very hard to get a hold of during a certain part of this year. I think all home gym equipment, but especially just plates and barbell. Yes. Very rare. Yeah, I had to order from, I think, six different companies to outfit a home gym. And there was a wait time of anywhere from one to three months, which yeah. is why I kept bouncing around to find what was there. And I made it work, but it was far more challenging. That's another interesting effect. Like certain businesses or sectors did very well with COVID. If you invested in toilet paper, home gym equipment, and Zoom, you are probably the richest person on the planet right now. <laughs> like, yeah. just not so. something we could ever predict, is it? Yeah. No. If you're the start yeah. of 2019, you're like, I'm going to buy some long hold stocks here. What mm-hmm. should I do? Toilet well, paper it, and home gym equipment. Yeah. That's right. There's a company in the UK, I don't know whether they may be international, called Strength Shop. Have you heard of them before? Yes. Yeah. So they have been intermittent. So I, since the start of the year, I've, I've trained at home for quite a while which is one of those things that like when this happens and, and you're already in that position, people are quite like passive aggressive towards you when you talk about your training. But mm-hmm. all, all I've wanted all year was just two five kilo plates. I was just short of two five kilo plates. I had all, the rest of the weight that I needed and I've only got them like two weeks ago. So from March till now, they have just been completely out of stock. And it must be frustrating for them, I think, to have that demand that will probably never be in place again. And they just cannot get the stock. It just must be this yeah. weird feeling of if only we could get the plates, we could 
thousands and thousands of customers, but can't it's get not it. your typical supply and demand dynamics. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, it's suddenly this strange. huge secondary market and people reselling five kilo plates for years to come. Mm. <laughs> Very strange. So, I, in terms of your home management, so you've adapted barbell training around this at home. Do you, and I don't know if you talk about this on other, in other contexts, but do you have a series of practices yourself? Do you meditate or do you have any kind of personal mindset management stuff? Or are you naturally quite equanimous? And and if so, have you had to step any of those up this year? I made it a solid four months meditating this year. And I acknowledged that I really liked it. It was good. But I keep starting it and then I just can't keep consistent with it. So I would love to say that I meditate and you can probably find, I think there, there was a few podcasts in the middle of that four month period where I thought that this is who I am now. <laughs> it's not. So <laughs> unfortunately that, that did fall away. I think, I don't know how much of a problem that is. I'm trying to self-evaluate. I do think I know that it helps me. And when I go through periods where I have high anxiety levels or I can't manage my thoughts or it's negatively affecting my sleep, that is something I lean on, but I will say that I do have a lot of other ways of being able to quiet the noise and, and try to look inward and be a little more self-aware. I think I am pretty self-aware and I've learned some tools and therapy that I've been through in the past to not put a ton of value on my thoughts when they're of a certain flavor, I guess, would be the way I would describe it. And I also have very supportive people around me in my circle of friends and family. So I have people I can talk to when I need to. I do exercise regularly. I have a very kind of ritualistic life in the way I eat and the way I train. So I think that probably brings me some solace, even if I'm not necessarily always doing structured quiet time. And I remember uh, you, you recommended Brené Brown's Gifts of Imperfection to me several years ago. And she's, she's another one that if you could buy stock in Brené Brown, you'd be mm. doing great now. But that was a fantastic one. I bought a copy for my mom as well. That's a really great book. Yeah, I thought I'm, I'm glad I'm glad that uh, that that stuck with you as a, a good book recommendation. That's cool. Sure. I think what Johnny and I find with meditation is that when you're in the groove of it, you almost forget how much you used to suffer, and you only notice the effect of meditation when you stop. And then you're like, "Oh, mm -hmm. I had a really crap couple of weeks," and you're like, "Ah, uh, that's what's happened." Yeah, it's interesting that so I think meditation, like morning routines, that uh, journaling, that kind of advice. I think there's this assumption that people who, because it's, it's like all successful people meditate, all successful people have these practices. But actually, I don't think I've ever spoken to anyone who is a business owner that people would have heard of who does any of them. And it does mm -hmm. make you, like, Menno was very, like, quite damning of it. <laughs> Not of meditation yeah, I specifically. Think a lot of this is actually pseudo productivity. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he meditates in the evening, though, doesn't he? He, he just oh, does it in the morning is the problem. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fair. That's a fair point. Um, have yeah. you been following Frank Young recently? No. So you know who he is, presumably, like one of the one of the OGs in um, fitness YouTube. He's the the guy who squats. came out with who who is the ab guy on YouTube? I'm forgetting his name now. Six, Six pack, pack so shortcuts. Yeah, who is that? Mike. So, Mike Chang. Sorry, that's it. Yeah. So, Frank was on. Oh, Frank Yang is he did a, like almost comedy on. Yeah, on yeah. Yeah. He, he'd get yes. like a black dildo on the ceiling and he'd get kicked out. <laughs> he's he's the, yes, he's the guy at the end of like lick it at the top and stuff. Yeah. 
so, I think Matt Ogus had him at the end of every video for quite a while. Yes. Doing, he's the guy who like runs up to the deadlifts dead and then says MF or yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I know, I know him through Matt's videos. So yeah. Eric, I, I would implore you to have, a, and there's two things I think we need to send you at the end of this. One of them is that. And the other one was the video of the guy with Ernie who had the hip operation. <laughs> and for anyone listening, if you've seen either of these, <laughs> very strange. So the Frank Young has taken his kind of quite obsessional personality and just driven it into meditation for the last couple of years. And he's done, I think he's accumulated 7,000 hours. So he's been doing two or three hours a day. And he's now had a fundamental shift in his consciousness. And he's been documenting it. And it's so fascinating to see. Wow. He, I wonder know. if he's going to use that to to launch a new, like, dildo-looking kind of... <laughs> mindfulness programmer i hope so i'll be first in the queue <laughs> <laughs> no but in all seriousness i think that's awesome and i think i've always been a little resistant to the enlightenment pathway through meditation and i i like i i, I do believe it's really good to get to a point where you accept yourself for who you are and you have a little more agency in yourself and you have self-awareness but i think a lot of the reason why a ton of people in business and productivity circles do meditation is because they're the type of person to keep turning over stones and there is very little downside and most only potential upside in doing meditation and it's mindfulness has a lot of science behind it and i but i don't think I don't think for the average person it's necessarily going to be like a huge game changer. I think it can be. I think it can be. And I, I can see why it would work for someone like like Frank Yang. I, I, obviously, like, there's probably a lot going on there. Finding some way to, to, to quiet the noise and be a little more centered, I don't think anyone's surprised that was beneficial. So are you saying that the if someone goes down the route of, like, I'm chasing enlightenment, it's almost like a recreational person who, like, goes for a jog getting into some like underground bodybuilding gym and ending up squatting 300 kilos and, and like being on loads of gear and, and it's, whoa, hang on, how did I end up here? Like they, it's not the track that they intended on. Yeah, no, I'm not. <laughs> that's a very specific comparison. <laughs> but, but I guess what I'm saying is that I have been exposed to and been around and seen the whole chasing the concept of enlightenment which is always an interesting one. It's that you always have it. It's always there. And the fact that you're chasing it is preventing you from getting to it. And you need to just let go so that you can be present. And while I agree with that to some degree, because uh, I think that is true, I feel like there has become a hierarchical cottage industry and religious association with it. That's just new agey spiritualism that, is none of that's necessary in my mind to see the potential benefits from meditation. And I think ironically, some of those, that whole paradigm is part of its own problem. And it even acknowledges that, but carries on in that way. This guru we follow says he's not, he or she is not special, that they've just achieved a level of self-awareness. So I'm going to follow them. They tell me not to follow them. Oh, I'm learning. Like I just stop all of that. I don't see the benefit to that, but I, I do see those people, and not in all cases, but in some cases, selling books, selling an admittance to retreats, which, I don't know, doesn't seem very enlightened to me. There's a so, lot of exploitation in the guru yes. world, financial and sexual, and it's all, yeah, it can get a bit 
dodgy. It, it creates this as you. I think the, 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 there are parallels to to training where. So I I was recommended by a friend like a year or so ago to have a coach a meditation coaching session with this guy who's a mm-hmm. meditation teacher. First time I'd experienced anything like that, and I was like, I've done this many sessions of meditation. Don't really think I experience much. And the analogy he used was like, if somebody came to you and said, I've done 30 training sessions and I'm not leaner yet, like, what would you say to them? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And I think it creates this, as you were saying, it's I'm meditating, therefore I should be moving towards this thing when actually yeah. it's just something you, you could do every day if you wanted yes. to as a practice. But yeah, I, it's one of those things that I think it like a lot of habits that have very long-term benefits and short-term can be not that great hard to stick to yeah and to be clear i think i'm only talking about some of the meaning associated with it Mm. do i i would like the idea of having a regular class that i could go to or an annual retreat or something like that where i would meditate and get me consistent in touch with it because i do benefit from it i think when people start throwing around the word enlightenment or enlightened or achieve the higher level of consciousness i start to get a little I, I start viewing it differently. Okay, so that's what we're talking about. All right. Because then it, it almost has these religious context and hierarchical nature that is always admitted to be like, the person who I'm saying has aspired to the Godhead or enlightenment is saying that I have not aspired to enlightenment. It's embedded in all the texts, but that's the model and we're going to try to follow in your footsteps to get to where you are, which you admit is not any different than me. And I'm just like... <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. The same shit you've been doing for 2,000 years, supposedly. <laughs> yeah. I didn't mean, I, I mean, I don't mean for this podcast to be segued into completely meditation. <laughs> but but, but I, I, I do totally agree. And I think the reason that I think Johnny and I gravitate to characters like Daniel Ingram and Gary Weber, who are very much more scientifically minded, who Daniel Ingram's an emergency medicine doctor, Gary Weber has been subject and researcher in some of the Harvard neuroscience studies looking at the fMRI and having functionally different brain states that he can demonstrate and mm. talk about in the neuroscience terms and rather than dressing them up in more hierarchical kind of ways yeah. is very cool and as you say i don't think it's i think it's necessary for the practice to take place so as I think I mentioned in the uh, message we originally sent you Eric to invite you back on, you were the most listened to episode of this kind of more personal trainer uh, orientated podcast last year. And we have, we've had quite a few like questions off the back of that um, or, or kind of people asking. So I suppose one of the things that we've noticed that is quite interesting in online fitness is there's kind of to, it's very broad, but there's, I think there's a bit of a divide between the, the group of people in the online fitness world who maybe are involved in like a strength sport or bodybuilding who look for an online coach and then there's a gen pop i'm maybe replacing online online training with what, what would normally be a class or something like that and i think coaches who would want to follow in your footsteps and similar coaches i think what they struggle with is how do i market myself in that world and no one's that people aren't necessarily building these huge audiences because of the traditional marketing approaches a lot of it is having valuable things to say, getting in front of the right people. I think when we spoke originally, you said that it was like, I think you credited everything to like Matt Ogus and Omar Isif and everything else was <laughs> was just, was luck. But how do you think about as 3DMJ or yourself 
I guess you're part of mass as well. How do you think about marketing those businesses? Do you have a strategy for that or a way that you think about we're going to build the business this year through the following approach? Yeah, I, to some degree, I do. A lot of it is things that I've learned from the people who really know about this. So uh, all credit goes to Lindsay Knuckles for mass and my books, all credit goes to Andy Morgan. And if you were to talk to Andy, he's actually learned a great deal from Lindsay Knuckles. So she is the, the mastermind behind it all. 3D Muscle Journey, though, has been the, the core center of what I'm passionate about. So I think uh, I made a very clear intention and goal from the start that I wanted to train bodybuilders and powerlifters, strength athletes and physique athletes. And you mentioned there's a lot of people who they, they don't know which way to go. Are they going to be uh, working with, with, with competitors or people who have that more of a mindset or a more general population? And I do think there's an important distinction. When I was doing my, my master's and my PhD work at AUT, I was sitting next to people who were strength conditioning coaches or coaches for specific sports, doing research on rugby, doing research on soccer, netball. I'm actually pointing to where our desks were located for <laughs> people who are just <laughs> feeling this, remembering it. And we, we used to have jokes. Someone would be watching game footage or using GPS data or going over a an assessment of limb asymmetry in rugby players coming back from, from injury to return to play. Shout out Dr. Scott Brown. And I'm sitting there and I've got someone, I, even at this time, it might have been one of your two guys is going through a squat or a deadlift or Johnny half naked in front of me or one of my one of my clients who's actually getting on stage doing quarter turns and me doing screenshots or voicing over and saying, all right, now what I want you to do is I want you to stick your butt out more and then flex like you're trying to pick up sticks with your feet so I can see your sartorius. So obviously that got made fun of compared to looking at game footage of football players. But I that was a time point for me where I really intentionally and purposefully thought of myself as a sports coach. And that's not to say that sports coaches go, I work with athletes, I don't worry about psychology or behavior, 100% not the case. But there is absolutely a different mentality to thinking, I'm helping people achieve a specific task within the domain of their sport, and also help them to be good humans. I don't know if you guys are familiar with John Wooden, classic figure in coaching, who was uh, the most dominant UCLA basketball coach. But his thing was always, I am helping people become better humans first, and then also athletes. He's still a sports coach, though. He wasn't a, a life coach or anything like that, who also taught people to shoot three free throws. So I think the model that we've always used at 3D Muscle Journey is to be very clear that we are specialist coaches for a sport that does have echoes and impacts and is heavily influenced by your relationship with your body, food, other people, your ability to manage stress, transition from periods of nutritional deprivation to not to training hard through an innovative in injury. But that is very different than I'm trying to help people who are either not happy with their health, not happy with what they see in the mirror, or not happy with their lives or in search of, honestly, sometimes just a friend when they're a personal trainer and trying to find a way to adopt fitness as a lifestyle or in their life when they previously struggled to do and they aren't drawn to it naturally. So they're paying someone else to do it. And that's not meant to be, I think it's easy for bodybuilders or powerlifters to hear that and feel like a sense of superiority or condescension. But I think that's normal. That's normal. We're the weird ones. And that is a 
different mindset completely to I am a bodybuilder or a powerlifter trying to get to the next level or overcome a plateau and I'd like to hire a specialist coach who has experience, skills, and knowledge and can maybe help me figure that out. And I think that is being clear about that, no matter what marketing strategy you use, which again, I'm not a marketing guru, but I am, I think I've always been very good at being direct, transparent, clear, and people knowing exactly what they're, they're, they're signing up for. And when people have tried to push or pull me towards being a more general fitness person, I will only go so far. And where I, or I think, I hope I know the limits of my expertise and I have crossed those boundaries before resulting in in, in a number of damaged doors and hopefully not damaged humans. But I have always resisted the temptation to be pulled out of a niche into a quote unquote broader market uh, that I'm ultimately unprepared for. The other comment I'll have before I'm sure I'll let you guys ask more specific questions is that luck was a huge part of it. Having the right people connected to me was very important. But I think I also did everything in my power before I got those opportunities to have the breadth and the depth of skill and experience I needed to be useful to have longevity once I came out. So I wasn't a one hit wonder or the guy who came out with some bullshit that got exposed by more actual science-based people that we've seen many examples of. I, I didn't pretend I had more coaching experience than I did. I didn't pretend I knew more than I did, but I worked towards, by the time I got it, it brought to the mainstream uh, of, of at least this niche community. I had a master's degree. I had a, a pro card. I'd done a bunch of shows. I've done a bunch of powerlifting meets. I had been training for you know the better part of seven years. And I had worked with people from novice to top three in, in the world in, in two different sports. I had something of value to give. And I think I could have been too narrow like I could have been the pure academics. I've seen many people who have a great understanding of the theory and the academics, but very little coaching experience or very little life experience within the realm of bodybuilding or powerlifting or not great people skills who just don't know how to leverage that into a following. So I, I think because I got to teach, because I got to compete, because I got to coach, because I got to be a personal trainer, but I always had that the goal of being that kind of sports coach for physique and strength sport. It allowed me to be very specific while also having the, the bona fides, if you will, to speak properly. And, and also I have, I, I'm a talker, which I think helps, but I, I cultivated the right skill set and didn't leave any gaps or chinks in my armor that allowed me once I was given that opportunity to be set on a larger stage, to be successful, I think. And then since then, the things I've worked on, has been like those marketing aspects and capitalizing on good opportunities, realizing that there was a, people would read a book if I wrote it and hooking up with the right people instead of going, you know what? I just want my name on it. I don't want Andy and Andrea on there and I'll sell a third of the, the copies or something like that. Um, saying yes to things like mass, recognizing when there was a gap for, for what we do and things like that. So I, I think I'm pretty good at assessing when there is something that there's a demand for that hasn't been fulfilled or done in the right way. And it matches up with my skill set. But beyond that, I think I have chose, I made good decisions to partner with the right people, I would say. So, fantastic answer. It's something that I guess like we, when we first started doing this, I think we both thought, oh, we'll have like powerlifting clients. 
because that's what we did at the time i guess our, mm-hmm. the reason we worked with you like our, our start really into the, the fitness world more seriously was through powerlifting and we just found i remember in fact you, you you told me this when i asked you this way way back when we were thinking of doing this i remember you saying that a like a top level bodybuilder or powerlifter doesn't hire a coach because of, of a facebook ad right it's not like i want to get to worlds or i want to win my win my pro card who's running the best facebook ad campaign it just doesn't even feature in the decision making yeah. so it can be quite hard to say this year i'm going to get this many clients who are competitive mm-hmm. powerlifters right because you can't necessarily influence that decision versus so i think we we had th- thought that would be the bulk of our business and it definitely wasn't although it evolved naturally like as yusuf and i appear more competitions or i guess as you say you have this skill set that an experience and you work with more people and get more results with more people start to hear about you or see examples of your work or things you've written and said and you become this kind of desirable asset in someone's journey versus i'm going to run a i'm going to write an article and get 20 ipf world level powerlifters. it just doesn't work like that and i think that in terms of the the clients we work with on this side of things that's probably the biggest gap we see is that mm. i suppose if someone i guess the other side of our of our client base are people that are where Yusuf and I were when we were struggling a lot. So bit, very busy work lives, trying to make the five days a week body part split work and it doesn't quite fit. They are searching for a solution to a problem or they have a goal right. and they're struggling to get there. It's like, how can I pay to, to help me on this journey? Someone who's competing in bodybuilding is doing that regardless. And they're probably not making that very many mistakes. They probably aren't stuck necessarily, but it's like, how do I get from here to, the next rung and who can help me to do that yeah it's interesting to hear you talk about that and i i imagine i don't know what stage i imagine 3dmj is at the point where you guys have i think you've launched a patreon right and you, you must have waiting lists and things like that you probably don't have the problem of like how do we get more people in the door at this point yeah we're at the point i think we have our own ecosphere so if, if we have spots on coaches rosters we just make an instagram post and then and then change the the application on our website to being open. And I mean, it's not crazy, but it's certainly, we are not, we're very fortunate that we don't have dry spells. Johnny, I was reflecting as you were talking about like Instagram ads or Facebook ad campaigns or things like that. There's a difference between, I think, insiders and outsiders. So most people, the first time they hire a personal trainer, they do so because they don't know about fitness. They don't know what they don't know. And they want to hire an expert. And they're basically just trying to gauge as someone who doesn't know about this stuff, okay, who is not going to take advantage of me? Who's, who's going to do a good job? And that means that good marketing has a much higher probability of influencing them. But I think people who are competitive athletes, they are going to be looking for something completely different. Like you said, they need to know that you, like if you're an unknown quantity in powerlifting or bodybuilding, that's going to be taking a big chance. So unless you are, you give the, you, you seem to be on the cutting edge and what impacts you have had are successful, but you're not that well known. That might be something that, that, that could attract an athlete who is maybe not had success with the current mainstream or approach or something in the domains that's known. But most of the time they're going to be looking at, all right, who clicks well with me? Who do I get a good sense of? Who do I trust? And who is also an insight. So I think, the fundamental approach you would take if we go all the way back to when I was like, I really just want to be a physique and bodybuilding coach. The approach I would have taken if I wanted to be a well-known personal trainer online 
would have been fundamentally different. And I think there's probably other people out there like the PTDC or PT Collective and, and those groups that emphasize a lot of things that I don't even think about because I'm not looking without uh, to, to get clients. I'm looking within uh, within the community I'm, I'm, I'm part of. And I think where personal trainers struggle a lot is personal trainers have a high probability of being within the crowd of people who would hire me. And I think <laughs> they then think that I they almost, it seems like they seem to have this hierarchy. And most of the time, my clients at this stage would be better working with a general population person than I would, even though they're hiring me. And I think they don't always necessarily realize that we create in like the physiques and strength and evidence-based world. Okay. The best guys are like the MD, PhD, natural pro bodybuilder who also has an elite total. That guy is bested at training everyone. And that's this crazy holdover from our, our more guru-minded days. And all those bona fides are probably highly irrelevant and maybe good. But honestly, the person who has worked with a wide swath of people in the general population with various goals is, is going to be far more effective. And like adding 100 pounds to a squat doesn't make him better at helping someone achieve their fitness goals when it's simply lower my cholesterol levels and find a movement practice and be able to go on a hike with my grandson and and not get out of breath or something like that. Taking the next question out of our mouths, which which was yeah. the advice to somebody who is looking to build a following online. And I think, as you said, like you've had a meandering portfolio career, but with a very clear North Star and a very clear sorry can you hear that someone's like revving their engine like a nutter outside which it which has had a very clear subset of people and you've been very careful as you said to go down the straight and narrow and not hang your hat on any movements or fads or concepts that could be i know you don't see them as attack vectors but could be downfalls like a lot of people mm -hmm. have have had as we've seen and people see you as oh that's, that's eric helms he's like the ultimate the ultimate PT, even though you're not a PT. And then I have to I have to be like Eric Helms. And we made a similar mistake just because we were, we started propane just as a way to make sense of being down the T Nation rabbit hole and reading about like leucine metabolism and all that. And the kind of people that were asking for coaching were other personal trainers. And we were mm -hmm. like, why is this happening? And then we realized actually it's because the general population don't care about this stuff. And here we are fussing over the details. And, and that's why the business mentoring has just come out organically because we ironically did niche to the wrong audience by producing content that didn't resonate with general population. And what you said about coaches, probably the ones with their ears closer to the ground have an advantage in a sense, the same way as one of the biggest factors in litigation with doctors and patients is how much someone likes their doctor not how many mm. letters they have after their name or whether they've passed their FRCS with honours or whatever else. So I think there's a there's something big to be said for people who don't feel like they have the academic accolades or all these kind of big athletic achievements as feathers in their bow to say, actually, if you can just resonate and crack on with Margaret, then you're probably going to do all right. Yeah, I totally agree. And shout out Marge. I think, yeah, like it's no, I, like when you think about it, it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone 
that people who are hiring folks who are like the kind of bodybuilder, scientist, coach archetype that I have followed to some degree in my career path are personal trainers because who wakes up one day and goes, you think, what, how do I spend more time in the gym than when I just lift weights? And how do I learn about lifting weights? Is there a way I can get paid to do that? Like the closest thing, I can't tell you how many personal trainers would like to be uh, professional athletes and somehow just make money just from training. And some of them are ex-professional athletes. The most common, not always, but a common degree you run into in people who are athletes in, in, in their youth is to then study exercise science. I do, you don't meet many exercise science students who don't like train or do endurance sport or something. I actually wouldn't trust them if they didn't. I'd be like, why are you doing this? I just wouldn't understand them. It would be very strange. <laughs> It'd be like, oh, I'm going to study to become a vet. So you like animals? No, I hate the vet. <laughs> What? Like, <laughs> it's very strange. They stink. So it's, I, I think it's, it's a common trope that personal trainers speak to other personal trainers. And I think it's, it's probably good. And you guys are probably giving the personal trainers who hired you much more assistance in helping them learn about business than helping them understand that they could buy a slightly better protein supplement for their own training. And yeah, I think that's one of those, probably those happy accidents where you realize, hold on, here's who we've actually reached. What do they need? And how can we provide value to them is uh, probably a better proposition than stumbling into something where you have this client set and you're still giving them something that maybe they won't want long-term. So I will, I, I, I do think, man, if I could reflect on, all right, I'm, I was lucky here, man, the whole, I, I don't want to give advice based on what I did in 2010 or 11 or 12, because it's a completely different world now, nine to 10 years later. If there is one thing that I think I really did do right is I've had a very clear idea of who I want to become and what I want to accomplish the whole time. And it has changed very little. The methods have changed slightly as they become available and opportunities present themselves, but the outcome has been the same. And I think from the start, what's attracted me to training in competition is it's this opportunity to live my own hero's story. Oh, I get to do bodybuilding and powerlifting and I get on the platform and I'm going to do this and I may not be the best, but I've got this story and it's how I enjoy the world. That's how I gamify my life experience and it gives me meaning. It gives me purpose. It gets me out of bed in the morning. It's exciting. And if something doesn't match with that, like if there's an opportunity to be a celebrity trainer, I'm like, Ugh, that's not those, that's not the heroes. That's not the hero in my book. And so it's this kind of, and I think it has that childhood fantastical element to it that really keeps it exciting for me and that's why i it keeps me away from i would say dream killing pragmatism and focuses me on just keeping it simple like useful pragmatism that it is still idealistic and goes towards my goal i've never been the person since i i went down this career path to go if there's a faster way to having financial security, I'm just going to choose that. Cause then it's like, what's the point? Like I now, now I've taken this book and I'm just like, I don't want to read the end of that book, even though I love it. And it's me and the storyline. And so it's, I think whatever combination of life experiences and personality traits and finding that I love lifting provided for me, the result is that I do have that North star and it makes decisions very easy. And I think there are alternate realities where a different combination of things could have resulted in more success with a slight, deviation from north to northwest or northeast but it's not the success i want uh in this reality 
So maybe I have 1.2 million followers and I'm on not just social media, but like real media talking about general fitness. And I'm wearing my Under Armour shirt and talking to, to Marge, but that's just, I, I wouldn't be happy with that now. And I think that is ultimately what you have to look at and just maximize your opportunities and success within the constraints of what gets you excited rather than doing it backwards and shifting. What do I think I should maximize on, but behind what will be uh, the best opportunity? If That's you, the, the one if thing. If you did that as well, if we saw you on TV or you become a celebrity trainer, you were on the biggest loser or something, we would have to send a search party out. Cause you'd be like, what have you done with the real Eric? And I think that's just because of everything you've built up to this point is based on authenticity and sticking close to that, that I think a lot of your fans would be quite confused by such a, a big change, even if it's understandable I, from a financial perspective. If that does happen, shout out to all the people who, who have followed my, me for any, any given amount of time, please send help. Because <laughs> you've been taken over by Elon, and yeah, some something has happened. Someone has uh, damning pictures or video evidence that I'm sure is fabricated because I'm a good human, or I have fallen into the depths of depression to the point where I only see material wealth as a pathway to any kind of enjoyment, and I am dying on the inside, and I need your your support. If we'll come, we'll come get you if that, if that happens, Eric. Right, don't worry. You'll only be on TV for a couple of moments, then we'll, you'll see us swinging from a. <laughs> Grab the new stuff out of the net. Exactly. Yeah. I love it. We've already got the stuff in case it happens. One okay. of the one of the other questions we get is people like coaches will see trainers like yourself or like Menno, people who are like on, you know, YouTube all the time, new videos, very qualified, very familiar with all of the, the latest evidence and think, I can't do anything like that. I'll never be comparable to them in any way. So I guess like imposter syndrome is what everyone refers to it as. Mm. And I was thinking, like, I, I imagine, and maybe you don't have this, but I imagine if I was to think, who would, as a coach, who would I be most nervous about training or prepping? It would probably be, like, the the strongest IPF powerlifter in the 105 category for Worlds on the... If I were to get anxiety about, I better make sure that program's correct. Mm. Do you get, like, at the level you're at, do you... Do you, when you're writing Bryce's program, do you think, oh, shit, like, I hope this is right? Or does it fade away at a certain level? Yeah, I think once you start putting yourself out there like that and you are working with highly visible athletes who you have some, regardless of what your actual ownership or contribution is, there is a perception that you will take some ownership, blame, positive or negative, for what happens. And that I actually came to term with more so with when I was coaching Matt Ogus and a few others. I, I've, I've worked with a number of higher profile lifters in both bodybuilding and, and powerlifting. And it has always been intimidating. But what I've always tried to focus on is the relationship I have with the person. And and then you're going back to the litigation with doctors, the most important part is, do they like the doctor? I think for me, I really just try to clear everything from my consciousness, except does the person I'm working with feel that I help them do is if, because ultimately the, you're your own platform in, in, in the modern era. 
And if I do right by Bryce, if I do right by Matt Ogus, if I did right by Jeff Nippert when he did his pro debut, if I do right by Jessica Bittner, who I'm working with right now, if I do right uh, by, I can think of a number of people who are relatively well-known in their circle, then they will, that will be reflected in what they say. I don't have to worry about backseat drivers or side seat drivers. And, and I also think that I'm very fortunate in that I got very interested in individualization, auto regulation, coaching psychology, and those aspects because I have internalized a coaching philosophy of being client-centered or athlete-centered in, in, in the coaching world. So it's not like I go, Bryce, what do you want in your program to be? Whatever, however many days a week. But absolutely, I, I allow and I encourage the athletes I work with to gatekeep and help me give me direction and permission and, and request for me, my skill set. When I write a program these days, I'm much less dictatorial or here's my system and you need to figure out a way to get filtered through it than, than I was in the past. And that's only going changing more over time. It's a standard trope for trainers and coaches to say, I feel bad for people I worked with in you know, 2012 or 2013 or 2011 or 2010. But I wouldn't say I feel bad, but I do know the experience would be different if someone who I worked with at that time point was to work with me now. I think they would find there is probably a little more flexibility and a little more agility, I would say, that we can go down a pathway. I will be able to determine earlier if it doesn't work. I'll get more, I have more tools to get input from you, and then we can shift direction. And if the athlete is someone who's, I honestly really don't know, I trust you, you do what's best, I have... I have tool sets there as well because I used to be less agile. I would say that it's very easy to get sucked into that. I I know a lot of colleagues and friends who have worked people at a very high level and that pressure can be paralyzing. And I have experienced it early in my career for sure. And I've had to develop little rules. Don't read YouTube comments to, to make it through the day. Or my hater management system that, that we discussed. <laughs> YouTube comments. Previous. The dregs of the internet. <laughs> yeah, bad. yeah, I have to not expose myself to some of that. But 100%, I, yes, it is. I would say it is easy to go down that path and agonize over week two, day three. Oh, fuck, is this right? Because Bryce has got... Bryce is going against Ashton Ruska this year. He, he, he might not win nationals. If he doesn't win nationals, he didn't go to Worlds. How is he going to feel? What's everyone going to say? Does that mean I'm a bad coach? And then you throw up in your mouth. But I think <laughs> I really just hone in on what does Bryce need? What, what are we building together? What does he care about? How can I help him? And at the end of the day, will he feel like I did my best to serve him and it was a beneficial relationship? And I view that in every time I work with anybody. And I think that, to me, has been the solution to, towards not getting you know, sucked into that. On the other side of that double-edged sword, then, so we've got the keeping the imposter syndrome in check when you're dealing with mm -hmm. highly visible athletes. But at the same time, for outside of coaching, you've got a high profile, you're widely admired on social media. There's a lot of... So you're saying you don't read the the YouTube comments because it's a bit of a cesspit, but how do you keep your ego in check on the other side, knowing that you've got, quote, fans and like thousands of followers? And is that something that comes into your mind or do you not really, does it not really touch you? So first I have hundreds of thousands of followers, <laughs> not just thousands, Yusuf. Um, <laughs> but let me tell you about how I keep my ego in check. Um, <laughs> 
No, actually, the funny thing, so I think I've told this, I think I might have mentioned this last time, but I didn't even get on Instagram until 2016, which makes zero sense from a business perspective for someone who is trying to coach bodybuilders and have a presence as an online coach for bodybuilders. Like, what's the most popular visual medium that online coaches use when they do more aesthetic-based coaching? Instagram. You haven't been there for five years since it's been under its inception. Correct. Okay. Why? I don't know. I'm an idiot. But I think, the, the, honestly, the answer was is that it seemed gross to me. <laughs> it's the same and we have to TikTok now. We're like, oh, it's, just, it's a new thing and it's a bit gross. I don't want to touch it. Yeah, that just means that, congratulations, you are now old as well. Uh, so <laughs> I think for me, because I associated a certain level of narcissism and egocentrism with the worst aspects of Instagram that I then thought I had to adopt some of that or be okay with it to be on Instagram. It was very much a place of not having agency instead of going, what do I want to use this for? And when I then went back to my North Star, as you guys described it, I'm like, all right, a big part of what I've become now and the change of what this hero's story looks like for me is being a communicator of physique and strength sports science. And Twitter is slightly worse or slightly better, depending on who you talk to, than YouTube comments as a platform. And I noticed most of my academic friends just yelled at other academics and they just reposted their, their stuff. Like for some reason, it's become this place where only five people read each published study, like impact journal, like a f- impact of five or six, which is about as high as it gets in sports science. Six, six other academics read it. You post it on Twitter. And now you've extended your reach to 10 other academics and maybe they repost it. So now you've reached everyone who researches, let's say, post-activation potentiation and maximal strength improvement. So that's all 30 of you are now aware of one another's research and you can argue about it. And you've managed to get zero penetration into the actual like practices of, of athletes and, and, and trainers and things like that. So Twitter to me just seemed like a fantastic intellectual circle jerk that I would stay far away from. Instagram, on the other hand, yeah, I get questions from people that make me realize oh, there's a huge diversity of knowledge levels. There's asymmetry where someone is explaining to someone else, you know, that, oh, this study didn't measure muscle protein breakdown and it's acute, not cross-sectional. And here's the evidence hierarchy and someone else is, so what's the best split? So it's more challenging, but that also tells you that I get to reach a much broader audience rather than speaking to the in-group. So I started to view Instagram as, okay, this is a platform for me to communicate science and ideas and share information. And I I do not do the platform right. If you look at my posts, most of them are saying, hey, come on Instagram so you can leave Instagram. And that doesn't get really well rewarded. And it's so apparent to me that when I do make content that is purely native to Instagram, like I had like this a post about P ratios, or I have just a self-congratulatory post about me me competing. If there's one thing Instagram loves, Eric, it's P ratios. (laughs) Oh yeah, absolutely. Or or people who have gotten to a good P ratio point, even if the P ratio doesn't actually help them gain muscle, but they, they look lean. So yeah, pictures of myself, good infographics that describe something that is reasonably controversial, self-congratulatory stuff, my book recommendations, things that are like people can look at it, understand it and go right from there. Those crush all my other posts. Like they get five times the amount of views and likes and interactions as me saying, hey, I was just on with Yusuf and Johnny go check it out. But nine out of 10 of my posts are like that. Hey, I did this, go check it out. 
And I think that is not the ideal way to use it, but it is viable. And I think it's, I use this basically my own, like, here's what I'm doing in, in the world. And here's opportunities to think more deeply. And then also, if you want to follow my story, here's me doing some shitty Olympic lifting and some mediocre powerlifting. So, yeah. So I, all that is to say, I don't use Instagram in the way that you are taught to use it. I do when it suits me and when it works. And I do know how to use Instagram better. But I also, if it doesn't match with what I'm trying to do, that doesn't matter to me to some degree. And I think I have managed to build a following without Instagram being the central piece of growing my own following. And I think that to me just reminds me like, oh, I guess I still have to just do good work. So I have been in phases where I was doing Instagram right, rapidly growing it. I'm posting every day. I'm utilizing the fact that I'm in good shape and I'm doing a lot of things that I can talk about there. And I need to think consciously about, okay, how do I make it native Instagram content? And it grew rapidly, but it also took away from my ability to do things that mattered. Like, I think it's very easy as a science communicator who is using a platform to think about optimizing the platform instead of optimizing science communication. And I think ultimately that gets you backward. And I think that's even from a neuroplasticity perspective. Like, I notice I'm dumber when I spend too much time on social media. Like, I'll be reading the same paragraph three times in in a peer-reviewed study, and I'm like, that's probably not good. As I'm supervising like six PhD students and I can't even read your introduction. That's not good. <laughs> I'm sure it's fine. That's not what I signed up for. I, you, you're good. I got to go post on my story. So I think that is, that's something that is a fine balance to walk. But I, again, go back to what is my purpose here? What's the actual work I'm trying to do? And this is just the town crier talking about it and occasionally saying, hey, I do have credibility and tying into the stuff that I don't like, but that I know does does raise one's profile. Okay. So it's never really about gratifying your ego in the sense that you're still using Instagram as a tool. You still, even when you're doing the posts which are playing the game for Instagram, it's you're very conscious that's what you're doing. And so from a from an ego perspective, it, it, it sounds like it never really enters that. It's more of like, how can I be strategic for a while, but still keep yeah. things going? So, so I'm a human. I love when people like me and tell me that I look great or I'm strong or I'm so smart or all that stuff. But I'm also self-aware enough to know that if I let that run rampant, I would hate myself. (laughs) And that that comes with a lot of downsides when you let, you know, when you're like, you know what I I, I miss about high school? Popularity. Like, I I really want to just make that my whole life where substance is gone and we just get a sense of uh, a purpose through being what others want us to be and having everyone like us. So like, that's obviously not great. It leads to relationships that aren't based on anything real relationships with people you don't actually like and blind spots. When your ego runs rampant, you miss all kinds of stuff. You can't admit when you're wrong, you defend things. You're more likely to buy into your own hype and then subsequently your BS if you're a content producer you get less skeptical and less critical. I don't want any of that. That all scares the crap out of me. So I wouldn't be able to get on Instagram for my ego. So when I got on Instagram, I thought, okay, this is about the science. It's not about me. I don't really like sharing my personal stuff. It's going to be about, I'll communicate studies. I'm going to support my team. I think that's another thing that really keeps me honest is that I don't have any Eric Helms ventures. Like my books, I have two co-authors, 3D Muscle Journey, there's eight of us. Mass, there's five of us, if you look at behind the scenes and everything. And 
I have always been a very cooperative person in what I do. So that means that when I act like an asshole online, it reflects on a lot of other people. And I think that is a big factor as to why I try not to be a, a bonehead when I get on the internet or on social media. And I try not to make it about me that much because it's not just about me. It's about the community I represent and all the people I work with. That is really valuable. And the traits that you mentioned there of people when their ego gets in the way that they can't admit they're wrong and they buy into their own hype and they lose the objectivity. I don't think just because someone is a scientific authority or they're seen as that, that they're immune to that. And you certainly do see people that brand themselves as a science person, as an evidence-based person, and yet they lose the objectivity because ego gets in and they start cherry-picking studies and justifying things that aren't there and don't back down. And yeah, it's an interesting one. There's a, I know this is going to be slightly ironic in that I heard this on a podcast from people who I respect and who I know do their homework, but I haven't actually looked into this. So this is some, some irony as I say it, but they were referencing the rates of conspiracy theory belief in Mensa. So Mensa, for those who don't know, is people who register with a society and you have to have a certain IQ or higher. It's I'm a registered genius, right? <laughs> and the rates of conspiracy theory beliefs are not less than the general population. So despite the fact that you are a genius, it suggests that has not armored you against nonsense and buying into false narratives about reality. Now, I think the covariate there that probably needs to be measured is that the, they felt the need to register for a society to say I'm a genius, <laughs> So I would suggest that there's a potential possibility that ego actively makes you uh, a poor critical thinker because uh, it becomes the driver for your beliefs and for defending your worldview. And it makes it very difficult to admit when you're wrong or change your mind or look at outside views. And then if you bolster that with high processing power, it just means that your rationalizations are going to be that more complex and convincing rather than them actually being more accurate. So I agree great conspiracy theories in Mensa. I bet they, because they're not, they won't just be cast off like, ah, oh, it's probably this. They'll have a lot of information to support whatever they think, I imagine. Oh man, if you look at, if you just look into some of the conspiracy theories that are out there, there are some of the, I don't, not even just within Mensa, but just in general, like you're, there's some of this, like the most intelligent morons I've, I've read. Like that is the most creative, well thought through, stupidest thing I've ever read. Impressive. I got sent like a a chart of conspiracy theories and how like commonly held they are. And there was one which was that like Finland does not exist or something like that, <laughs> which I couldn't Aust believe. Australia doesn't exist. It's just part of the flat earth one. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's just such an odd that there are people who are okay, it's so easy to prove or disprove, isn't it? Try and go there, see what happens. But. Well, ultimately, the thing that makes you trip and fall and never get out of the rabbit hole is that almost all conspiracy theories have an element of you can't trust the mainstream, quote unquote, sources of information yeah. that there is this like most conspiracies for you to stay with them. You get to a point where you accept that there is a global cabal between academics, governments, corporate, whatever power position you are that is agreeing to hold false this thing like if you look at the flat earth stuff it's a like high school teachers and nasa are, are in collaboration yeah. to teach you about false physics you know and so, they're in cahoots with the, the doctors putting the chips in the 5g 
That's right. Horizons. And they post about it as their GPS location is listed in the corner of their post because they so have... Spread. A final question, Eric, because we're constantly time. Yeah. I think the world, even outside of the fitness industry, so a lot of people are, are working remote, working online. For a lot of personal trainers, especially like people who are used to working in a gym, mm. suddenly they've been thrust into this like sedentary way of life. Maybe they're coaching all of their clients from behind a laptop. It'd just be great to hear you do a quick run through. How do you go about structuring a day of what is, I assume, and has been for a long time, purely online work with clients, with athletes? Do you have like, you mentioned before, it's quite, you have quite a ritualistic day. So it'd be great to hear like, how do you approach that? Where do you put your training? Just to give people some ideas of maybe where they could begin. Yeah, actually, can I start with a really brief research review? Just super, super short. <laughs> and you're like, that's not what I asked. Eric. Is it, is it but, just is it unrelated? Just no, just to get it out. it's on carnitine. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> no it's <laughs> no, it's it's about sedentariness. So about five years ago, I started maybe six years ago now. I started to become aware of a line of research that made me think differently about the paradigm of activity and sedentariness. So there are a number of studies and now meta-analyses that suggest that they are to some degree separate signals. And what I mean by that is like your traditional health history questionnaire or health uh, survey as a part of maybe a publication is how active are you? And they have, you know, sedentary, light active, moderately active, very active, right? And typically the descriptors blend elements of your job and how regular you are with fitness. And I've always found it very difficult to answer those questions. Like I train at a vigorous level five days a week for a total of eight hours per week, but my job is sedentary. That's, that's not on the list. And the data wouldn't, and so I've always compromised and guessed, but the data would possibly suggest that they are different things. So for example, there's been a numerous study, I can think of four or five, where they gave people four to five days of sedentary lifestyle. So sitting 13, 14 hour plus a day. And then they give them an exercise challenge. So they run on a treadmill at 70% of VO2 max for an hour. And then they feed them a high fat or high, high carbohydrate meal. And they look at their ability to dispose of triglycerides and glucose. And if the individuals were in this high sedentary group, the exercise did not give them the metabolic benefits as if they were not. And this is true even if they're in a calorie surplus or at maintenance. And when you look at all-cause mortality, there is a signal purely from sedentariness. There was a recent 2020 meta-analysis done with 44,000 middle-aged and older adults where they found that, okay, we're going to take uh, tertiles of high, moderate, and low uh, amounts of moderate to vigorous physical activity every day, and then do uh, cross-reference them with low, high, and moderate amounts of sedentariness. And there was this relationship that was stepwise in each case to where even if you had a high amount of moderate to vigorous activity per week in that tertile, being more and more sedentary still increased the odds ratio of all-cause mortality. So I have become much more conscious in saying, look, like I don't lift for health, but I absolutely don't want to sacrifice my health. And I've come to realize that lifting is not enough. Having my ritualistic eating patterns is not enough. And I have now been much more conscious of talking to my clients about their step count and their general activity. And there is data to suggest that moving from, say, two to 3,000 steps per day, which is about what you would expect from someone who is sedentary and living in work-from-home kind of lifestyle, even with training, there's metabolic and all-cause mortality benefits when you go from two to three 
to four to five, and then it starts to plateau somewhere between seven to nine in the couple studies that I've seen. So I had been trying to get myself up to 7,000 steps per day. I get maybe I get close to that. I get about 40,000 steps per week, just slightly less than that. And I also work out five times a week. Do that. Every morning, my wife and I, we get up and we go walk to breakfast. Obviously, that is like buying breakfast every morning is, is something I'm very fortunate to be able to do. Not something I necessarily recommend. But you can just go on a walk without having ended a cafe as well. But that is something that, that we do. So that's how I start my day every morning is when I go on a walk. And then I've done things to each time I need to go to the grocery store or get anywhere. I live in the city. So I'm able to walk and I try to walk. And I think starting the day off with a sunlight, getting con- to connect with my partner and getting my, my step count in is, is something that is very valuable. And I think it isn't just, here's a nice ritual. I think it actually has benefit as more people are working from home. Even if you're someone who trains regularly, like, why do I need to walk? Because you might die early. <laughs> Not to be a fear monger. But okay, so I start my day with that. I Then I come home and I typically have scheduled right around this time, sometime between 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. local. I have a podcast or an interview or a, uh, a video meet with one of my students pretty much every day. Maybe not on the weekends, but sometimes then too. So that kind of dictates me till 11. And then I focus on emails until lunch because that's something that the, the, the task won't take too long in most cases. So I can work for a couple hours on that. Then I eat lunch. I do a little bit of deep work at that point. And then typically I train around four. And then I have about an hour before, hour to two hours, depending on how long the workout was before uh, dinner. And at that point, I make the executive call because it sounds very important. Whether I want to keep working or whether I want to do some recreating or chores, it depends on what's my workload. So I have an optional two-hour slot there, one to two hours. And uh, then I eat dinner. And then after dinner, it's just hanging out with my wife, typically Netflix and chilling for the rest of the night. And we're married 16 years, so most time it is just Netflix, to be clear. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the the step count thing is something that so you said things I get a crazy amount of steps in, but I, I have a this dog. This is my annual average, which is the big fail of the year, 4,000. Hey, you're above sedentary. Just above, like squeeze. But there's, there's days where I get 60 steps. You're thinking, no, that's like, <laughs> no, that's no you <laughs> 60 steps. 60. It's like walking to the bathroom and back. You're like a minimization. Where it's, oh, I can't, it, I'd love to go to the toilet, but I, I might. I'm just going to shit my pants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I've got to do the activity. Yeah. I imagine doctors in hospital just walking miles nurses all the time. Do loads. Nurses get twelve right. to fifteen. The doctors just stand there, stand in the corner and answer so, questions. So doctors spend probably do three percent of your time with a patient and ninety seven percent of your time like on a computer tweaking like, the five driving and writing the center of the hospital. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's my ritual. And, and why? Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's. I suppose the challenge is like having blocks for things because something like email or any especially email but any reactive work can just mm. be all day and then before you've done 60 steps and all you've done is email yeah i do think that needs to be like you need to take that advice and apply it to your framework like an online coach emails and reactive work is the bulk of your work and you don't need to stop and do deep work unless you're you know, also writing content or doing blogs or whatever. For me, my emails, I only have at any given time at most five clients. Like I, I haven't stopped coaching completely, but it can't explode out. If it's a post block report, like I might Skype with the person for an hour, look over their spreadsheet, write a program, 
record my screen and send it to them. So we're looking at that could take an hour and a half if you include the interview, maybe two hours or so. But, uh, but that is again, once per client every three to four weeks. So that never adds up to too much. So for me, I like to start with reactive work and emails and clearing my email inbox because it can't explode and it gives me low hanging fruit to succeed. And I feel like, nice, clear my email inbox. I'm ready to rock. But if you're in a job where each email you respond to results in two more email responses and you look up at six and you're like, oh my God, I haven't even <laughs> left the house. <laughs> it's worse. Don't do that. Yeah. yeah. Just, just, just work through a chunk. Exactly. Just, just have a block no matter what. And that was something I had to de- develop slightly different approaches when I was a full-time coach versus what I do now. You could just also wait for emails to hit a hundred and then delete them all. And then just that, keep going that way. Yeah. I know some people <laughs> who brag about how full their email inboxes are. And I normally just think like you're shitty. It's when you see the, everyone knows a person when you look at their phone, they have 2,700 unread emails and you just think, and then they refuse to delete them as well they're they're left unread but they might need them so they don't delete them i think it just it's like at one point it seemed manageable but they put it off and then ever since then like they they can't even go in there yeah like just text me you know (laughs) and i'm like i'm your boss i'm not going to text you (laughs) you're fired (laughs) eric it's been awesome it's been a pleasure Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Standard question. Where do people go if they want to learn more about you? Uh, Yeah. So I think the one-stop shop is 3dmusclejourney.com. That is the number three, the letter D, musclejourney.com. From there, you have link outs to all the things that I'm about, which is really one thing, and that's lifting weights to get unreasonably good looking or unnecessarily strong. So we have blog posts, YouTube, all that's free. And you can also find the 3DMJ vault where we have courses, both paid and free. And you can also find links to mass, which we tangentially talked about the muscle and strength pyramids, my books. And then the only, only other things you can't find from there, uh, unless you really want to dig around, would be my Instagram, which is at Helms 3DMJ and then iron culture, which I do every Monday with, with Omar Isif, my partner in crime, where we talk about history, science, and culture of lifting. What a list. Cool. We'll put all those links in the description below. Thank you, sir. Wonderful. Eric, thanks very much. My pleasure. I think people will get at least two pieces of information after they make it through the first half hour of us talking about paddles. (laughs) 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 Want to learn more about the systems we use to run, build, and scale propanefitness.com? Head over to propanefitness.com forward slash business podcast and you can get your hands on our free training that covers the seven steps that we take with every client that we help build their own online business and also the seven steps that we use to successfully build Propane Fitness. We walk through the sales systems, the delivery systems, follow-up, remarketing, how to basically build your program so that it delivers coaching to your clients without you being there 24-7. We really do cover the full thing, right? And if you want to continue even further and potentially work with us, there's a chance to book in a call to have an informal chat with Yusuf or I to just basically see if any of our programs would be a fit to help you get from where you are to where you want to get to. So go to propanefitness.com forward slash business podcast today and get access to that. If you'd like to learn just more about Yusuf and I, more about us, what we do, follow us on the various channels, the best place to go is our YouTube channel. We have a load of stuff from fitness content, productivity content, 
why Yusuf slept on the floor for several months, why he's been having cold showers. There's always stuff on there that's entertaining and hopefully informative. So just go to YouTube, search for Propane Fitness, and you can find out a bit more about us there as well. Speak to you on the next episode. Thank you.